Welcome to the podcast, Life with Jerry Williams, and Merry Christmas. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, four days until Christmas. What's that? Let me see. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Four sleeps till Christmas. This is scheduled to release on December the 21st of 2020. That is Monday. Christmas is on Friday. I can hardly wait. Uh, this episode, we are going to wrap up our four uh, episode little mini series dealing with Christmas. And each one of these episodes, we've taken a look at one of the characters associated in some way or another with the Christmas story. And a couple of them, I've looked at the story behind some of the Christmas traditions. And I'm going to do that again in this episode as well. All of that is coming up on Life with Jerry Williams, the podcast. I think that what I am about to address probably in a stretch could be construed as a tradition. Have you ever wondered why we say Merry Christmas? Well, I've got the kind of time on my hands where I wonder about that kind of stuff and I can research stuff like that, like the origins of the term Merry and why we use it. It's long perplexed me that we use the word Merry almost exclusively in connection with Christmas. Now think about it. When was the last time you actually said Merry when you didn't immediately utter Christmas right after it? Oh, sure. I have an Aunt Mary, and it's spelled that way, M-E-R-R-Y. And there was one of the hobbits in the, the Lord of the Rings movies uh, called Mary, M-E-R-R-Y. And there is that line in the song, The Fountain in the Park, while strolling through the park one day in the merry, merry month of May. But you probably have never heard that song. It was written back in 1884. And then there's Robin Hood and his merry men. But the use of the word there has a much different connotation than the Mary we use with Christmas. When it was first used to describe Robin's men around 1450, it was used to describe any follower or companion of an outlaw or knight. So how did that word, which has fallen out of general usage, get such a close connection with Christmas? Linguistic scholars trace the first use of the phrase back to 1534 when the English Catholic bishop John Fisher used it in a letter to Thomas Cromwell, dated on December 22nd, to express greetings for Christmas. The English carol, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, is believed to have been written during that same century. Three centuries later, in 1843, the phrase showed up in the very first commercial Christmas card. And that same year, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens was published, and he used the phrase extensively. Meanwhile, the word happy which we use for almost every other celebratory occasion, happy birthday, happy new year, happy Thanksgiving, happy Groundhog Day, originates from the word hap, meaning luck or chance. And it has the connotation of an emotional condition, while Mary is used more to describe a behavior, as in Bob Cratchit's excuse to Ebenezer Scrooge for being late to work the day after Christmas. We were making rather merry yesterday, sir. Some people do say Happy Christmas, but that's almost exclusive to Great Britain, and it can be blamed, largely, on Queen Elizabeth, who reportedly refuses to say Merry Christmas because she thinks that Merry implies a sense of boisterousness and intoxication. And it's possible that when the phrase began being used in Britain, church leaders encouraged people to use the more conservative and reserved Happy. They were 
British, after all. And then it may be as simple as trying to avoid redundancy when expressing greetings for both Christmas and New Year's. After all, who wants to say Happy Christmas and Happy New Year? Yeah, that, that's too much redundancy. There are two movies that have been Christmas traditions at my house for as long as I can remember. It's A Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol. Of, of course, I'm talking about the 1951 English version with Alastair Sim as Scrooge. I remember growing up in New Jersey and on Christmas Eve, after my brother and sister and I had gone to bed, hearing the moaning of the ghost of Jacob Marley wafting up the stairs from the TV below as my parents wrapped presents. Now, this is way before YouTube or DVDs or VHS. If you wanted to watch a Christmas classic back then, you had to hope one of your local over-the-air channels had it scheduled at a time that was convenient. Oh, some years later, that It's a Wonderful Life became a part of our Christmas viewing traditions. A clerical error allowed the copyright on the movie to lapse in 1974. Though the story it was based on, The Greatest Gift, was still under copyright, so TV stations had to pay some royalties to air it, but not nearly as much if the film itself was still under copyright. So It's a Wonderful Life was aired seemingly everywhere every Christmas season until 1993, when the copyright again went into effect. Both of these movies are stories of redemption, and they employ similar devices. There are heavenly messengers. You have Clarence Oddbody, Angel Second Class, and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. Flashbacks and scenes from alternate futures and presents, in the case of a world in which George Bailey had never been born, are heavily relied upon in each. And to a casual observer, it may seem that the biggest difference in these stories is between the main characters, Ebenezer Scrooge and George Bailey. Scrooge was, to quote Charles Dickens, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. And George Bailey seemed like a great guy. He gave up his college money to his brother and stayed in Bedford Falls to work at the Bailey Brothers building and loan after his father died. He sacrificed to keep the business going, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. But it was Potter who truly understood George. He told George, you used to be so cocky. You're going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? A miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. Before being visited by the Christmas ghosts, it was pretty obvious that Scrooge was not a good guy. That he needed to be redeemed. It wasn't so obvious in George's case. On the outside, he seemed like a great guy, but inside, he was resentful. In the scene at Mary's house where George and Mary are on the phone with Sam Wainwright, George says, I want to do what I want to do. The fact that for most of the movie, George does not get to do what he believes he wants to do says a great deal about what's going on inside of this character. The change in Scrooge is arguably more dramatic. That may have more to do with the fact that A Christmas Carol shows us more of Scrooge after his redemption experience. He wakes up on Christmas morning to discover that the Christmas ghosts had done their work all in one night. 
One of my favorite scenes of any movie is the final scene in A Christmas Carol where Bob Cratchit comes to work late on the day after Christmas and Scrooge informs him that he's going to raise a salary. And then Scrooge can't contain his own joy and berates himself. I don't deserve to be so happy, but I can't help it. That is where I most identify with old Ebenezer. In It's a Wonderful Life, we see very little of George after his redemption experience. He goes back home, now truly joyful and grateful for all that he actually does have, mostly his relationships. And he does order one... And he does utter one significant phrase that demonstrates the change that has taken place in him. He's back on the bridge where he first encountered Clarence, and he's calling out to the angel. Help me, Clarence. Get me back. Get me back. I don't care what happens to me. Only get me back to my wife and kids. At that point, George exists again, and perhaps truly exists for the very first time. Whichever of these two characters seems most like us, both teach a vital lesson, especially at this time of year. We are all in need of God's redemption, and without it, we are never truly able to appreciate all of his many blessings. Allow me to be honest. I don't get eternity. What I mean to say is that there is an element of eternity that I seem to be incapable of fully understanding. Now, I grasp the concept of eternity from this point in time onward. That makes sense to me, even at a mathematical level. I once asked my father, what's the biggest number? His reply confused me for a moment. There is no biggest number. He must have sensed my bewilderment, so he explained further. You can always add one more. Think of the biggest number you can, and no fair shouting out infinity. Let's go with an easy one. One trillion. Pretty big number. Now add one. See how that works? Numbers don't end. In that way, I understand the concept of eternity never ending. Where I'm having trouble is going the other way. Eternity never beginning. Another time I asked my father a two-part question. Who made God, and when did that happen? To that, he gave a short two-part answer. No one, and never. Again, my response was pure befuddlement. And again, my dad sensed this. God has always been. There was never a time when God was not. But no nifty little mathematical example was going to help my brain digest that. I believe it. I just can't explain it. Maybe the answer to the no-beginning conundrum is better illustrated using distance or something akin to interstellar geography. Pick a point in space and begin moving away from it as a companion begins moving in the opposite direction. And both of you stop when you reach the end of space. My guess is that you will never see each other again and neither of you will ever stop moving. Granted, to me, that's not nearly as convincing or neatly packaged as the no biggest number explanation for future eternity, but it gets a little closer. Well, what does this have to do with Christmas, you may be asking? I'm getting there. Jesus came to save us from our sin, to redeem us, to pay the debt that we owed him. At Christmas, we celebrate his coming into the world in the same manner every one of us 
with the exception of Adam and Eve, who I will also get to in a moment, has come into the world, born of a human mother. He was born so that we did not have to die. And he died so that we might live. Now make no mistake, Jesus was no plan B. Have you ever thought, if only Adam and Eve had not sinned, then Jesus would not have needed to die on the cross? No. The scene in heaven when Eve took that fruit from the serpent in the garden, ate it, and then gave some to Adam was not, oh, nuts. They broke the only rule. Now what are we going to do? God, who has always been and will always be, always knew that we would mess it up and need a Savior. Always. Jesus coming to earth as a baby, dying on the cross, rising on the third day, was always the plan. Then why did God bother with the whole messy business of humanity in the first place? I don't know. I must admit that there are times when I look at the state of us, of humanity in total, and I think, man, y'all are lucky that this creation scheme was not up to me, because I'm not entirely sure I would have pulled the trigger on it. And then God reminds me of my own kids. And I get a little closer to comprehension. I may not possess God's omniscience, but I had an inkling before I considered becoming a parent that there would be pain, there would be heartache involved in the process. And in that, I have not been disappointed. Yet I went ahead with it anyway. And so we come to Christmas the birth of the Savior, God becoming man, the beginning of the fulfillment of the ultimate promise, though not exactly what most of those who were waiting expected. Not that it should have come as a total shock. God had been dropping hints for centuries. When Adam and Eve first sinned and realized that they were naked and hid in the garden, God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That's the first time blood was shed to cover sin. When Abraham told Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, that was some pretty heavy-duty foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross. The Old Testament is full of references to the coming of Jesus and what his life would be like. That includes the way he would initially enter our world as a baby, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. This has always been God's plan. And the real miracle of Christmas is that he invites us to be a part of it. And that will do it for this episode of Life with Jerry Williams, the podcast. Thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of your day today. I hope you are going to have just a fabulous, wonderfully blessed Christmas that you get to spend time with the people who you love and who love you, if it's in person or via Zoom because of good old COVID-19. Thank you so much again for allowing me to be a part of of getting you ready for Christmas. I hope that you will subscribe to the podcast. If your podcast platform allows it, leave a review. That'd be very cool. Uh, a five-star rating, if they, if they allowed you to do that, that will help other people find the podcast. Now, next week, we're going to wrap up the year. Uh, that will be, what, the 28th. Monday the 28th is the next episode that comes out uh, of, of 2020. And I have no clue what we're going to do. But I tell you what, it'll be exciting. 
So thank you again for listening to Life with Jerry Williams, the podcast.